Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you so much for this morning to sit under your word, to talk to you. And we pray that as we read this psalm again, that you would feed us well, uh, that we would leave convinced and changed by your word. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, photography has changed a lot over the last 150 years. Uh, it's one of my little hobbies is to study the history of photography. And this is one of the very first photos we have on record. It's Paris, 1839. Now, it's a pretty boring photo, okay? It's an empty street in Paris, deliberately chosen to be empty because this photo took 20 minutes to capture. So if anyone moved, it would have, ru it would have ruined the photo. The only thing interesting in the photo is bottom left corner is a shoe shiner. You could probably see him there. How things have changed. Now on your phone, you can take 360 degree photos. One of my favourites is this one. I can't show you the 360 degree photo, but imagine it's 360 of the Great Wall of China. And I found this one where you can literally stand and swivel with your browser and basically capture the breadth and the size of this man-made creation. You can look up, you can look down, you can look forwards, you can look backwards. It gives an incredible perspective. What's this got to do with Psalm 40? Well, Psalm 40 is like a 360-degree photo. Its author, David, looks backwards, he looks forwards, he looks up, and then he looks down to us. So in verses 1 to 3... David looks backwards and he looks in his rear vision mirror and he remembers a horrible, horrible time. We'll read it again. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. David looks backwards and sees a wet, slimy pit. I don't want you to think of a two-year-old enjoying the mud. No, no, this is a miserable, miserable time. It's like being stuck in a quicksand where you are stuck and alone and helpless for a long time. Now, what was David going through? We don't know. It could have been a time of overwhelming guilt from his sin. So that's Psalm 38 and 39. It could have been a season of sickness or a season of depression, which we know David went through. It could have been when his friends betrayed him or when his enemies attacked him, Psalm 35. But actually, I think it's deliberately left vague. So you and I can read it and apply it to situations that we've gone through, much like Paul and his thorn in 2 Corinthians. So what's the slimy pit? It's when you wake up and your sin is unbearable. It's when your sadness or your fear or your anxiety is, is overwhelming. It's when doubt is just attacking your faith day in, day out. Most of us know the slimy pit. Well, how did David respond? He waited patiently for the Lord. Literally, he waited, waited for the Lord. The double word there is, is intense, 
but actually it means action. Don't imagine David just sitting under his doona in bed, kind of just waiting for it to pass. No, no. David waited in constant action. He waited in constant prayer to God. He waited by coming to church every Sunday and serving and worshipping God. David trusted God's timing and will. And then do you see those words? God saved him. God moved him from the place of slippery, muddy helplessness to the rock, to the secure ground. From chaos to stability. What was David's feeling? It's that feeling you get when you get off a roller coaster. It's that feeling you get when you get off the manly ferry and you get to the solid ground. That's what David felt when God saved him. And as you read those um, first three verses, did you notice who the hero was? You see, verses one to three, David is not posting a selfie saying, hey, look at my faith. Wasn't I great? Look at my strength. No, no, hear his words again. God heard my cry. God lifted me up. God set my feet on the rock. God put a new song in my heart and I will loudly praise him. You see, David goes, God saved me, just as he did to Joseph, just as he did when Israel Israel were slaves in Egypt. God saved him. And then God incredibly gave him the words to sing the song of praise to him. Incredible grace. Well, in verses 4 and 5, David looks up and he points to the God who is trustworthy. See verse 4? Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. You see, when David was in the pit... He learned how trustworthy God was. Verse 5, many, Lord my God, are your wonders that you have done. The things you have planned for us, none can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, there would be too many to declare. So David calls you and me to trust God when life is good. To thank God for our existence, for the gifts of food and shelter that we enjoy, for our education, for our church, for our government, for the Holy Spirit, for the forgiveness of sins, for hope beyond the death. All those good things when life is good, trust God. David says, trust the same God, the God of creation and wisdom and providence when life is hard, when you are in the pit. He calls us to believe God is good when you're in the darkness of pain. To believe God is in control when Satan is attacking you. Why does David do that? Well, you see it in verse 4, don't you? God's people can either trust God or trust false gods or proud people. And that's our world in Sydney, isn't it? Our world loves to trust anyone but God. Our world says, trust your feelings. Your feelings tell you what's best. Trust your friends. Trust Google. 
Trust the banks. Actually, not so much after the Royal Commission. <laughs> you see, this same temptation was faced by David and Job and Mary. You see, who you trust matters. Our world has loved the story of the Thai soccer team this week, hasn't it? We've loved the story of hearing them found, then the saviours going through the tunnel, and then boy by boy being saved. But there was a moment when they were first found that they were faced with a choice, wasn't it? They could trust their rescuers and scuba dive for four kilometres through a cave, or they could stay in the cave and rescue themselves by digging themselves out. That was their choice. They wisely trusted their rescuers. You see, that's the same lesson David learnt in the slimy pit. No human is superman or superwoman. Sure, you can trust yourself when life is good. You can trust yourself when you're healthy. You can trust yourself when you're um, wealthy. You can trust yourself when you're safe. But when you are in the slimy pit, you cannot trust yourself anymore. We need God. And God's people look up and they trust their good, powerful, and trustworthy God. In verses 6 and 7, David then explains to us what trusting God looks like. And it's actually quite shocking. Have a look at it in verses 6 and 7. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Whenever the Bible repeats something twice, we're meant to notice. You see it there, notice twice? Trusting God has nothing to do with offering God sacrifices, with offering God cows or money. David's point's really simple. Trusting God is not about doing something for God. Now that's a shock, isn't it? Because if you've ever dipped into the Old Testament, you'll have read the story about the temple and the sacrificial system, and that was all central to worshipping God. Israel were well trained at this. So is David saying that the law is a mistake? Well, no. What he was saying is this. When David wrote this psalm, God was fed up with Israel's use of the sacrificial system. You see, they had turned this magnificent system of worship that excuse me, was tangible and regular and powerful into mindless duty. These people would turn up to church each week and go, I should be here. God will be satisfied when I give my money. If I just give my cow and my dove, God will love me. And the truth is that these sacrifices did nothing for those people. Why? Because trusting God starts with joyfully obeying his word. You see it there in verse 5. My ears you have opened. Literally, David says this, you dug out my ears. The picture is God with a little spade digging out David's ears so that David would be able to hear God speaking. Verse 7. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll, verse 8. 
I desire to do your will. Your law is within my heart. You see, for David, God's word is like honey. It's sweet, it's good, it's life-giving. It's a pleasure to hear, a pleasure to read, and he has a supernatural longing to do it. And that's because trusting God starts with joyfully obeying his word in the good times and the hard. Most of you will have heard of King Saul. King Saul got it all wrong. You see, King Saul, he plundered the Amalekites. He won the battle. But instead of doing what God's word said and destroying all their stuff, he decided to offer sacrifices to God. That sounds right. Offer a sacrifice to God. God likes that. Have a look what God says. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. It's pretty challenging, isn't it? Because we're tempted to think, okay, God, I'm here every Sunday. Is that enough? Okay, God, I'll give you 9% of my income. Is that enough? Hey, God, I've said my prayers. I've read my Bible this week. Our God wants more than our outward sacrifices. He wants our heart. And the way to the heart is through the ears. And the way God gets our heart is through his word. Trusting God starts with obeying his word. I'm sure you feel the constant pressure to distrust God's word in every area of your life. You are told in Sydney to distrust God's word sexually, professionally, ethically. And you're tempted to put down God's word, stop listening to God and listen to yourself. It's a temptation we all face. This guy faced that temptation too. A few months back he shared his faith publicly And whether he said it perfectly or not is not the issue, but he was thrown into the slimy pit, wasn't he? By the world, but also by some Christians. I don't know him at all, but I imagine he woke up every morning going, I'm just going to shut my Bible. I'm just going to shut my mouth and stop trusting God. But David knows that we trust God by joyfully obeying his sweet word. In these verses in Psalm 40, David also looks forward. And he looks forward to a future king. And the reason is, is that we trust God imperfectly. You may be a great Christian, but you're still only an imperfect truster of God. But there was a king, not David, who trusted God Perfectly, And he went through the slimy pit too, didn't he? But he trusted God completely. And that's why in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews quotes Psalm 40. It's on the screen. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, Christ said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. 
I have come to do your will, my God. They're David's words. But Jesus speaks them. Why does Jesus speak them? Because only Jesus lives out these words perfectly, like no one else that's ever lived. And he did it all the way to death. How about these words from Jesus' uh, uh, mouth? John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. You see, in the miry bog of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Not my will, but I trust you, God. On the cross, he was tempted to get down, and Jesus said, No. You see, Jesus gave his eyes, his heart, his ears, his whole body in service of God, and in doing so, made us acceptable before God. And this is incredible. Because you and I, we don't trust God perfectly. And how does God respond? Well, God does not lean away from us. God leans into us. God doesn't say, oh, you're in the slimy pit of sin. You should stay there. No, no. God sent his son down into the slimy pit. And God, the perfect God, got his hands dirty. He reached into the muck and he pulled us out. Clean, holy hands getting dirty. Jesus willingly lived the obedient life that we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. Why? To bring us to God. So what does a Christian do? We just don't turn up and offer our sacrifices. We boldly trust the God who got dirty to save us us we don't trust our good things we trust Jesus because when we look in our rear vision mirror we see a God who hung on a cross for us and we know that that death was sufficient to save us in our last two verses David looks down to you and me to those of us who have walked that path. You see, some of us in this room this morning have walked exactly the same path as David. We may have lost children. We may struggle with unemployment. We may have experienced failure or broken relationships or the guilt of sin. Over the last four months, my little family, we've been really struggling through a dark time of trauma as we've lost someone, uh, someone in our family has died. And so we've been in the miry pit together and, and each night you hear it in the prayers around the dinner table, crying out to God. Well, David's last words are to those of you in this room who have walked the same path as David, but you've come out the other side. You've seen God's care for you or even how he saved you. And if that's you this morning, don't keep it to yourself. Psalm 40 says this, verse 9. I proclaim to your sorry, I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. 
Who's the great assembly? It's God's people. It's God's church. It's us. And David uses three negatives in those two verses, basically just to emphasise the positive. He says, I do not seal my lips. I talk a lot. I don't hide your work for myself. I show other people what you have done. I do not conceal it from my brothers and sisters. I unveil it so that lots of people can see. What's he saying? He's saying, if you have been through the pit, talk about how God worked in your life. Now, why would you do that? Well, verse 3. It helps other people fear the Lord. That means put God at the centre. And trust God, which means put your confidence in his saving power. The normal Christian life is not dealing with the slimy pit alone. It is testifying to God's work in and after the hard times. Why? To help others trust God. Christians, we are not whingers, nor are we boasters. We are people who testify about God's goodness and power and trustworthiness and salvation, even when life is terrible. Why? Because we know Jesus. And his comfort works when life is hard. And he will rescue us in the future. He is the only reason we trust God at his word. And David actually is really looking at those of you who are older and those of you who are parents. And the reason is, is in verses 9 to 10, that you have been through multiple times of being through the slimy pit. The next generation often haven't been there at all. So please don't rob the next generation of the, next less, of the lessons you have learnt about how to think, how to be grateful, how to be God-centred and patient and enduring and prayer. In our research with young people, they often do not know a person who has been through a hard time and has shared with them how to be a Christian in it. Parents are hiding it in their bedrooms and older people don't even know the names of younger people. And so when younger people go through their slimy pit at 17, 18, 19 and 20, they give up the faith because they do not know how to navigate these hard times. They need to learn from you that God is faithful and how to trust him when life is messy. So if you want an application this morning, look for ways to share your faith your God, who you joyfully trust, even when it's hard, with the next generation. Do it in person, or if that's too scary, just write them a letter and encourage them to trust the God you trust, even when life is hard. Let me pray. Gracious God, you are ultimately trustworthy. You never fail. Your word is true. 
And as your people this morning, we are encouraged by David to trust you. Trusting you when life is good, trust you when life is hard. And why do we trust you, God? Because you came to earth. You died and rose again. You fulfilled your promise. And that is why we have ultimate trust in you each day. Help us to keep our eyes on Christ. Amen.